Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think that now with the benefit of a week of hindsight, we have more sense of where Silicon Valley Bank was not doing its job or where, in fact, various overseers were coming up short. That was Matt Kelly. I'm Tom Fox. In this episode of Compliance into the Weeds, Matt and I take a deeper dive into the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, mining the disaster for lessons for the compliance professional. It's an interesting and fascinating study of how catastrophic failure by all levels of external auditors, boards of directors, senior management, and even regulators led to this disaster. It's a hot topic that we're able to dissect for you. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, quick message from our sponsor. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Matt Kelly back for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we decided uh, we're going to continue to explore Silicon Valley Bank. It's turned out to be as juicy or juicier uh, than we originally thought. So, Matt, you wrote a blog post on this today and really identified three uh, specific areas of at least inquiry. Uh, I've got maybe a couple more so uh, you want to um, tell us what we've learned in the last week or since at least since we last recorded? Well, Tom, I think that now with the benefit of a week of hindsight, we have more sense of where Silicon Valley Bank was not doing its job or where, in fact, various overseers were coming up short. And we should always remember at the end here, there are a bunch of depositors who had a near-death experience wondering if they were going to lose all their money. We had a bunch of shareholders who did lose all their money. Uh, we had taxpayers that in one form or another are ultimately supporting this bailout kind of loan facility, whatever you want to call it, that the banking world is now giving Silicon Valley Bank or its you know carcass. Um, so there were a lot of overseers who should have, I think, done a better job calling out the big strategic risks that SVB had been taking, and nobody did really call them out on that. So the people who were depending on those overseers, employees, depositors, shareholders, it kind of looks like they were getting the wrong assurances about the wrong things and not the right risk alarms on the right things to be able to make better decisions here. And so we're stuck with a whole bunch of bad decisions 
principally by SVB management, but not entirely by them, that uh, I think still offers a lot of lessons for the rest of us, including compliance and audit professionals not in banking, about how do we make sure that our oversight structures don't have those same kind of blind spots that eventually lead to a disaster and everybody's pointing fingers at each other, which is pretty much what's been going on at SVB or its inheritor carcass, whatever you want to call it now, uh, all for the last week or so is just a bunch of people saying, well, how did this come to pass and who knew about it? It kind of sort of looks like a bunch of people knew about it and didn't really warn stakeholders about it. Well, let's just pick up on that point right there. One of the groups that knew about it or should have known about it was KPMG. And I really enjoyed your part of your blog post because you really didn't point fingers. What you did was, I thought, uh, detailed the policies behind an audit of a bank and how, a, as you described it, an anodyne report, that's quote anodyne, end quote, report uh, really didn't protect the investors, shareholders, or others. So what is the role or what was the role of KPMG and did they fulfill that? Uh, first off, I've been looking for an excuse to word, use the word anodyne in a post for a while now. Very glad that I did get to use it. So we should remember that really the auditor's report is going to give assurance on two points. Uh, number one, is there a risk of material misstatement in the financial statements? And number two, does the audit firm have any substantial doubt about the organization's ability to continue as a going concern for roughly the next 12 months or so? That's how long it is. But it's those two things. And so when you look at what Silicon Valley Bank was doing, racking up these loans on its balance sheet known as held to maturity securities that were all predicated on very low interest rate loans, which then became worth less and less as interest rates rose higher. Why would anybody want to buy those loans? Because I don't need to get something at 2%. I can get a loan based on a 4% you know, interest rate right now because we've raised rates. So the value of those securities went down. So the bank had these unrealized losses totaling about $15 billion or so on a portfolio of roughly $90, million, $90 billion. So it's a big chunk of change. But for anybody who's saying, well, how come the auditors didn't disclose any of that? We, they didn't have to. The bank disclosed all of this. The accounting for those unrealized losses was properly reported. It's right there, page 125. You could have looked it up. You could have looked it up for a period of months. And there were a lot of, well, not a lot, but there were a fair number of cynics and skeptics around SVB raising the alarms on those unrealized losses, at least since November, I think. Um, but everything was properly reported. So KBMG said there is no real risk of material misstatement here. And there hasn't been. It just it's a terrible strategy, but it was properly reported according to existing accounting rules, which is what auditors look at. And as for its ability to continue as a going concern, I think that's a grayer area. But that's where a lot of audit firms like to reside, frankly, because then they could say, well, it's not our job to predict that interest rates might go up in 2023 and make things even worse. Um, they're not allowed to predict what the Fed may or may not do. They can't give any certainty about that. 
So they didn't. And the uh, audit standard for an ability to continue as a going concern just says, is there substantial doubt? Well, not really, because if no depositors had rushed their money out in some social media groupthink freakout, if that hadn't happened, the bank would still be here. So it's reasonable to say, okay, absent that freak out, you know, the bank would have been fine. That's not a substantial doubt. And then the standard actually says you shouldn't take the absence of a big substantial concern warning as a positive affirmation that, yeah, they're going to still be around in 12 months. That's not what it means. So there is this maybe a flawed or unuseful standard from the audit regulators about what a going concern warning is and you know what exactly the audit firms are looking at. And so they gave this anodyne report that said, yes, there's no real material risk of misstatement and there's no substantial doubt of its ability to continue as a going concern. You, know, you could make an argument that legally those things are correct and yet they still had this big, giant strategic risk on the books that nobody in the audit report was really talking about. So I don't mean to let the auditors off the hook, but I do mean to point out maybe our standards for what an audit looks at and maybe what assurance they're giving investors is not necessarily fit for purpose. Um, that's a question regulators will need to think about. And I know that the Financial Accounting Standards Board the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, they are thinking about this. But, you know, I'm not entirely sure that we can crucify KPMG as much as many people like to crucify audit firms. And sometimes I am among that crowd. I'm not sure we can do that here. Uh, next up, you took a look at the actual board and management of Silicon Valley Bank. What did you see first at the board and then at management, which, if not raised red flags, at least raise one of your eyebrows. Uh, yeah. The, so when you look at what management has disclosed, management and the board, you're really left with more questions about what was going on there. And there are some people who, for example, out on Twitter have picked apart SVB's most recent and uh, I guess now final proxy statement where you can sketch through that the sort of mounting crisis that the board was going through in 2022. Simple example, the risk committee of the board met seven times in 2021. It met 18 times in 2022. Well, why? Um, what were they going on about? I suspect maybe they were doing something trying to think through how do we manage risk when the bank did not have a chief risk officer on the job full time for eight months in 2022. Uh, it was a woman who had been at the bank for a while, had announced her retirement at the beginning of 2022, then stepped back in, a, I think, more of like a part-time consulting caretaker role. But really, the bank had no dedicated full-time risk officer from April through January. April 2022 through January of 2023, there was no chief risk officer there on the job. How is this working here? So what is the risk committee doing? Um you know, uh, let me go back to those held to maturity securities I mentioned and the big unrealized losses. And you get those when interest rates start to rise. Now, that's not a secret. That's not unusual in banking. A lot of banks have held the maturity securities on the balance sheet, but they hedge 
their interest rate risk. You can go and you can buy financial instruments to offset that threat. And if one part of the bet goes wrong, the other part of the bet will rise and it cancels each other out. Well, Silicon Valley Bank didn't do that. Okay, why not? What was the strategy that made that decision a good one? Because I don't see it. Most other people, I think, wouldn't see it. Um, where was the board's risk committee in pressing management to ask about, to clarify, how do you think not hedging interest rate risk is a good idea? When interest rates started rising in 2022 and the pace got faster and faster, it was not a secret. So we have questions like that. Um, and then we can pivot back to management. So a lot of people might wonder, you know, was management asleep at the switch about all of this? Apparently not, because, at least according to the Financial Times, in late 2020, the management of Silicon Valley Bank hired some financial consultants who work within BlackRock, the giant asset management firm. They have a financial consulting wing as well. So SVB hired those consultants to come in and look at their risk management practices. SVB basically, uh, the BlackRock consultants basically told SVB, your risk management is a mess. They looked at 11 different criteria, kind of flunked them on all of the 11. Uh, they were substantially lower than SVBB's peers on these risk management practices, um, gave a report to SVB management, offered to help implement improvements, and that was at the beginning of this year, which management at Silicon Valley Bank then declined to pursue that opportunity. Again, why not? Because wasn't the risk committee meeting night and day almost? They met 18 times in 2022. Were they meeting to talk about this report? We don't know. Uh, were they trying to figure out if we did need better risk management practices per what these consultants were leaning toward telling us? We here on the outside, we don't know. But what does strike me, Tom, is that whatever that report from the BlackRock consultants said, and it hasn't been disclosed. We don't know what it said. But clearly, if it's raising red flags over your risk management processes, that's the sort of thing investors would want to know about, much more than the anodyne audit report that said you know, there's no material risk of risk of material misstatement. Um, you can have no risk of material misstatement and still a terrible strategy and terrible processes and an awful balance sheet that's going to explode which was what SVB had, at least the BlackRock consultants were giving a report that presumably said, yeah, this is a time bomb waiting to explode. And then it did. So it calls in the question, are we giving the investors, depositors, employees, other stakeholders, are we giving them the right sort of assurance over the right sort of stuff? And now we've got two examples, at least in my book, where the answer is no, we weren't. So what's going on here? The that really brought up an interesting thing that I hear from time to time when I talk to institutional investors, which is they're in almost a continual dialogue with the companies uh, they invest in, and that the suggestions, you know, typically it's around ESG or other uh, topics, but here uh, recognizing that was BlackRock was hired as consultants, uh, it's unclear whether they were investors. But that's a sort of dialogue that you can't have with an institutional investor so that it really put management 
on notice that these questions uh, need to be responded to. And I think in your blog post, uh, you simply said they, they certainly noted them, but had no response. And that is the issue for those of us looking on the outside, um, that there's no response. This was just really a black box that uh, of management decision-making when clearly there were big strategic risks piling up all through 2022 as interest rates were rising. These held the market securities were getting worth less. The unrealized losses were building up. There was no hedging against that risk. Uh, there were people, financial sleuths out there, putting this together through plain as day corporate disclosures that Silicon Valley Bank had made all through last year. You know, people had noticed as early as November or January that this was going to blow up. And so it did. And yet, you know, the why was this not brought to the public's attention sooner? Or why did regulators not intercede a little more aggressively so that we didn't have to do this emergency lending guaranteeing of deposits, sort of whatever it was that regulators wound up doing last weekend. So that brings us to the regulators. And what did you see in this arena or this area that at least, once again, if didn't raise questions for you, caused you to raise an eyebrow or two? Uh, well, so this is another separate report, this one in the New York Times that came out over the weekend, that apparently examiners at the San Francisco Fed who would be SVB's primary regulators or examiners, uh, they were raising red flags to the bank directly, uh, where by late 2021, as the San Francisco Fed had already given Silicon Valley Bank at least six citations for poor risk management practices and not doing enough to assure easy access to emergency cash in a crunch which is ultimately what did Silicon Valley Bank in two weeks ago. It was that failure. And the Fed raised this alarm 18 months ago. Uh, all through 2022, uh, by mid-year last year, they were in what is called a full supervisory review from the Fed. Um, that also might explain why the bank's risk committee was meeting 18 times over the course of 2022 to get to the bottom of all of these Fed supervisory actions. Um, but again, you know, that is information that would have pointed investors and depositors to the alarms here. I think it should have given pause to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, maybe some others about, okay, if Silicon Valley Bank does blow up at some point, how are we going to get them out of the jam? Um, because it looks like the FDIC and other banking regulators really didn't appreciate how would we handle this bank collapse. They didn't start to think about it until the Thursday night before it actually happened. Yet here we have San Francisco Fed examiners at least pointing to the problems and pointing down the road saying, you know, at the end of the road here is going to be really ugly. They were doing that 18 months, 12 months earlier. And yet we didn't really have a plan from the regulators about how to resolve this crisis. It's like nobody had thought about this when really, once we rolled back Dodd-Frank protections and supervisory constraints, specifically for mid-sized banks, which Republicans pushed through in 2018, once that happened, that became the systemic risk that regulators had to think about. It wasn't that a big bank was going to go 
under very suddenly. That's not going to happen. It was that multiple mid-sized banks might go bankrupt simultaneously. How would we handle that? That is exactly the situation staring the public in the face right now. And the banking regulators seem like they weren't prepared with a response there. Um, so I'm not necessarily surprised that people like Elizabeth Warren are raising hell about it. Republicans are raising hell about it. When you have Elizabeth Warren and conservatives both raising hell at the same time, it's a valid issue to go and look at then because that does not happen too often. But here we are and people are acting like, you know, this caught us by surprise. It should not have caught us by surprise, but there was this oversight deficit across the board, so to speak, from the board to management, to the auditors, to regulators, Everybody kind of sort of knew there was a problem, but a whole lot of finger pointing and not enough planning and assurance and communication to the public at large and to investors. So we've got a little bit of time left, Matt. Uh, are there any compliance lessons you've teased out of what we've learned over the past week, or do you want me to go first? Um, well, I've talked plenty here, Tom. I'm happy to let you go first, and then I'll, I'll bounce back off what you say. So starting at the board level, I see a lack of real uh, oversight uh, by the board, uh, basically under Caremark, uh, with notice, with red flags apparent. Uh, on the compliance, I'm going to point to what you talked about with the chief risk officer uh, and equate that to compliance. But there didn't appear to be a systemic look at, internal look, by the risk department uh, because it was denuded by the lack of a CRO uh, really preparing for a series of eventualities, which is something I think compliance needs to do. And then uh, management had several red flags. They had the uh, BlackRock Consultants Report. Uh, they had the information certainly available to them uh, that they um, didn't take aggressive enough actions. On the audit, I would say that uh, I'm going to point to internal auditors and ask them, if they do an internal audit, would those findings be made available to management and a board, which would be in a way that those groups would understand, hey, we've got a problem. So I guess I saw some broad lessons. Uh, I don't know if you drew other lessons, uh, but uh, where are you on some compliance lessons learned at this point? Well, I definitely think that um, one point here that others could take away is Whatever risk management or risk assurance function we're talking about, compliance or a chief risk officer or an internal audit function, are we keeping our eye on the risk that matters? Because it looks like at least some of these uh, overseers were not really looking at the big fundamental questions that would matter most, especially to other stakeholders, investors, such as do we have a good plan to offset our risks around interest rate hikes? Um, you know, No, they didn't because they weren't doing that. Now, maybe there is some convoluted reason why you wouldn't want to hedge against rising interest rates, but it looks like that never came up. Um, maybe it did and nobody's disclosed it yet. But at this point, like, why not? Come on, folks. The whole thing's already burned down to the ground. Somebody somewhere might as well point out the ashes of what could have been a good idea. Um, but, you know, to a certain extent, if you're not looking at the big strategic risks, then who really cares about the compliance risks? You know, OK, yeah, great. The, the company had the bank had 
accurately reported financial statements, well, there's no bank anymore. So big deal. What are we going to do with those audited financial statements? Um, I would also be very curious in the fullness of time to see what sort of enforcement issues might come here. And this is where I could foresee um, either the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is the big bank for the regulator for community banks, and Silicon Valley Bank would fall under their jurisdiction. Uh, OCC was the one that really took Wells Fargo's errant executives to task. I could see that happening here. Um, I could see the Securities and Exchange Commission getting involved here, that uh, there is going to be a discussion about executive bonuses that were paid out just before the collapse. Uh, those 10B5-1 plans that are meant to let executives sell insider stock at fixed periods that a lot of people suspect are just vehicles to be a fig leaf for insider trading. Well, those 10B51 plans were used by Silicon Valley executives just before the collapse. The SEC has talked a lot about clawbacks. It has talked a lot about uh, 10B51 plans. Well, all right, SEC Enforcement Division, here's your big chance. Go nuts on these guys because they clearly were exercising those vehicles to uh, you know line their pockets while the bank was crashing around its ears. Um, Tom, I do wonder about the board and the Caremark decision and were they exercising enough risk oversight or not? Well, like if they weren't if they were not exercising their oversight duties, what on earth were they doing for those 18 risk committee meetings in 2022? Were they just singing kumbaya and painting their toenails? Was there some serious discussion? Were decisions made? This is the kind of stuff that I think will eventually come out probably in a shareholder lawsuit. I don't know when it's going to see the light of day, but I can't envision a scenario where we don't get there. Um, but there's going to be just a lot about how did the people nominally in charge of overseeing the bank and exercising good judgment you know, there were misjudgments all over the place. How did they continue for so long? And that's that's going to be the lesson to learn here. Seems like a great way to end this podcast, man. I can't wait to see what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'm pleased to announce that Compliance Into the Weeds won a 2022 Communicators Award in two categories for the best co-host and for best business podcast. So thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Awards. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive into the compliance weeds. Finally, if you thought about starting your own podcast, please contact me. I'd love to help you either uh, help you produce your podcast or put you on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.